Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy, and today we have a very special episode for you. Eliza Greenman joins us to talk about persimmons and oaks and their role in the future climate change-driven diet. Now, for folks that aren't familiar with Eliza's work, she's someone I've been following for a long, long time, and one of those researchers that always pushes you to work harder, to dig deeper, and to have hope that by looking to the past, we can build a better future. She's one of those people that gives me genuine hope in the work we're doing and the future we envision. Her passion about tree crops is second to none, and I think you all will really enjoy this conversation. To read some of her research, check out Eliza Apples, that's 1A, Eliza'Apples.com, which is included in the show notes. And of course, if you're interested in her work, check out Instagram, and also pay attention to what's going on with the Savannah Institute, because she's working over there too. Now let's get to the interview. Eliza, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I've been following you for a, a very long time. You are one of the only blogs that I've actually read whenever you post anything new. It, you're one of the few people that I look at and see new research happening. And it's just like, every time I'm like, this is so beyond anything I knew. And like, that doesn't really happen to me that often. So I'll, I'll be done singing your praises. But for folks that aren't familiar with your work, you're involved in a lot of things now. When you When your name came up, at some point in my life, and like I started researching like what you were doing, you were all about apples and pigs, and now you're into a million things. So at first, I want to ask how you kind of got from apples and pigs to where you are today, and then we're going to talk about persimmons. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I've been listening to this show for about a year now, and once again, like your content is at least like scratches far more of the surface than most well, thank you. podcasts do. Like, you know, it's just glitter on like well-known tropes about all these topics and <laughs> you actually dig deep. So it's, it's fun. It's fun to listen to. It's a bit <laughs> like conferences for me these days. Like I don't go to really many conferences because it's just the same people saying the same thing and there's like yeah. nothing new or exciting usually. So thanks. But, okay, pigs and apples. Um, how'd I get into them? So when I was uh, 12 years old, I talked my parents into letting me have a pet pig that I saved my allowance for. And, like, and I, I'm from, like, coastal Virginia suburbs. Like, I did not grow up on a farm. I think we had an eighth of an acre. And so it took me, like, a few years to get approval final approval from my parents but like and it was like the beginning of the internet it was like well at least for me it was like 1998 but i ordered a pig <laughs> off the internet <laughs> yeah that like took a delta flight from texas <laughs> and landed and picked her up and then i had a pig and it was like a vietnamese pot belly pig and so like from early on that pig, by the way, lived to be 23 years old and died two, <laughs> died two years ago. But uh, like I, early on, I had this like fascination with pigs and like I just knew so much about them. It was like one of the things I, I read about all the time. And so it was it, they've always just been a fascination of mine and in the back of my head. And I I'd never want to have another pet pig. But I had just been thinking like, hmm, how could I like stretch this itch, basically? And like keep learning about pigs and see where I end up. So then I I have a degree in forestry and I worked all over the United States and parts of the world, sort of obtaining this degree. And 
I just learned that I did not like forestry as it was. I didn't like the community or the culture around it, like especially in the South. I didn't like the idea of raising trees for monoculturally, like monocultural applications for like in-use products that might be toilet paper, you know, or something like that. And so um, I slowly, and I guess I won't get into this much because I do talk about this a lot, is I started to transition out of pulp or, you know, timber trees into like this realm of non-timber forest products trees. And so I started like learning everything I could about the persimmons and the hickories and I mean, all the plants, like identifying them and trying to figure out what they're, you know, if they're edible or whatever, because like, if you're working in the forest, you've got a lot of time, (laughs) generally. And so then that like transitioned into me living on an island that was covered in apples and they didn't really have a timber product. And this was in Maine. And it, it all just made sense. It was like, wow, this is, you know, a form of this is this is actually a form of forestry, but it's for food production and like they're bright and colorful and like it's so much better than and, and like people love like everybody loves apples and there's nobody like strapping themselves to a tree to save an apple that like, you know, is getting pruned. Yeah, it was like the a whole cultural shift for me and also like a molecular shift as well. Like my whole <laughs> body was just like, this is it. This is where this is where you need to be. Like, and it was an instantaneous passion that I can't that's also like a curse in many ways. But uh yeah, uh to bring back pigs into the equation, I started reading, I mean, I've read everything I can just about apples that's been written prior to let's say 1950. I just started to learn that like the genetic origin of apples was in Central Asia. So I like I saved up and I went and what I found there was they have like apple forests and the apples are also growing. They're like walnut forests too. And there's like cherry plums and pears. I mean, it's just like an, a purely natural yeah. native fruit forest and nut forest. But it's managed by people with animals. And I just started to see the whole like sustainable loop of animal inputs and services meets final products and like human and, and like derived human nutrition and all of these things. And so that's when it was like the pig yeah. came back into the picture and it was like, okay, there's, you know, this is, these are Muslim countries. Like they don't manage with pigs, but I happen to know a lot about pigs. <laughs> so that's when I like shepherded them into my new, my new realm of trying to wrap my head around like more holistic, cheaper ways of yeah. managing orchards for both high quality like meats or meat animal products and fruits and nuts and wildlife basically or habitat yeah and how did you get into persimmons from there yeah so persimmons i first got into when i was uh, working for louisiana state university and i was in the bottom <laughs> i was doing bottomland forest research where you're wearing like high waders you know and <laughs> watching the gators yeah dangerous and hot <laughs> but 
like in the bayous, like watching, you know, water moccasins <laughs> swim by. And you're like, oh. <laughs> but uh, so I started to see persimmons like all over the place. And then I started to read about them and started to eat them. And again, like I spent so much time in New England, like pretty soon after that, like the next seven or eight years, that persimmon sort of fell out of my realm. But once I moved back south and started to see them and then started to get like I do some consulting. And so I I got hired to do a bunch of persimmon research for somebody. And just it just completely opened my eyes up to how valuable of a tree this is and how it's almost completely unnoticed, like in terms of its not only like its human benefits, but also its. Yeah. incredible animal benefits that uh yeah so i would say i really kicked that into high persimmons into high gear probably like two years ago um and just trying to think about from like feeding from a feeding pigs perspective like okay like what crops will drop for have the longest drop window and sure apples are one pears are another but persimmons really pecans or another but persimmons like you know depend you can mix and match and get like september through february drop yeah when you're most scarce for food yeah that's how it just kept moving up the list of important everything i learned it's just like wow this thing is really incredible that's how i got into it (laughs) yeah persimmons are a wild fruit i'm from new england but i did spend a little bit of time in the south and I did see them occasionally, but I also, my family's from Italy and they're very common, obviously not the American persimmon, but persimmons in general. So like, I was like, oh, I know what that is. Like, I know kind of what it tastes like. Yeah, it is it is a really unique uh, native fruit that doesn't get a lot of attention. One of the things I did read about it was that in terms of like caloric content, it's like one of the densest fruits in North America. And it's like you said, it drops so late in the year and it's a big tree too. It's a big, you know massive amount of fruit that comes out of one single tree versus uh, a blueberry bush or even like a, a choke cherry or something like that. So you're getting like benefits of it having like a massive fruit as well as like having this massive tree itself. So one of the things that I think uh, you have turned me on to more than anyone else is the potential because of some of the diversity that exists. You know, we're talking about it being a, su- a southern uh, fruit tree. But it actually does really well in the north. And I think especially with climate change, persimmon is going to be one of those fruits that we are going to rely on very heavily 50 years from now. So I'm curious about your thoughts on its movement going north and uh, a little bit about that genetics. Yeah, so I'm going to launch into a little bit of a background on persimmons because we've been doing a lot of work in this. So also, like I work with Savannah Institute currently on a persimmon breeding project. And so a lot of these insights I'll share are from that work and that we have done and we will continue to do. But so there's two types of persimmons. Well, that's not completely true. But when we think of an American persimmon, there's two main types. There's the Northern American persimmon and the Southern American persimmon. The difference between the two generally is that the northern persimmon is more of like an orchard tree. So it grows to be like 20, 25 feet tall. The fruits are generally larger. And there's this crazy phenomenon that happens with the northern persimmons where 
Persimmons are normally dioecious, so that means there's male and female plants. Like, you know, so females are the ones that fruit, males are the and they need the males to flower and to be pollinized by bees and whatnot. But in the 90, so, so, and I'm going to refer to these as 90 and 60, and I know that's going to confuse everybody, but the northern persimmon has 90 chromosomes, which is, makes it a hexaploid. And the southern persimmon has 60 chromosomes, making it a tetraploid. And I'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. The, the northern 90 has specimens that are monoecious, where there's male and female flowers on the same or reproductive structures on the same tree meaning that they're not you know they don't need some male because it's already it's already on the tree and that's like one of the major tenets of domestication for a lot if you look at like a lot of the crops that have made it you know into the human realm like usually they're monoecious very rarely do you see a crop like dioecious seems to be considered more so undomesticated or or wild it's not completely true but like like with mulberries for example but mulberries are also leaky in their sexual structures too there's that and then there's the southern persimmon the 60 chromosome that is a much taller tree like it can be it's more so a timber tree or it can be a timber tree um they're in the ebony family so the wood is like super valuable well it used to be anyway like when they made golf clubs out of ebony and like steering wheels but um and the fruits are smaller and generally like drop later in the year and then the where the 90 northerns drop earlier and that's you know because of their climates they're adapted to like the fruits in the south aren't going to hit like a crate you know they're not going to hit crazy cold for a while and so they can hold on to their fruit structures for, you know, as long as they want, basically. Whereas in this, in the north, like they got to ripen those fruits fast in order to rely on some sort of dispersal. Yeah. So we're primarily working with the 90 chromosome northern persimmon and trying to push the boundaries northward to see where. Basically, in making some selections, we we've sequenced the 90 chromosome genome or a persimmon genome, which Turns out is incredibly difficult, and we received we received assistance from like a sequencing company called PacBio, along with Hudson Alpha, which is like a nonprofit sequencing. They're like an incredible genetics organization, and they did it. They, I mean, we raised a bunch of money, but they did it for us to try and start like unlocking the mechanisms behind what's it going to take to make these. Persimmon, you know, what? Where's the? Where are the genes basically that control cold hardiness? And can we select from those from like seedling stage? You know, once at first leaf out, yeah. In order to really speed up persimmon breeding, because it's yeah, you know, at this point, if we plant it from seed to fruit, that's like six or seven years, you know. Yeah. And so that's what your cycles are looking like, and where this. You know, after our first cycle, it could very well become, once we figure out what the markers are, it could very well become like two to three years between of of picking, basically picking the right parents that yeah. have those cold hardiness genes that then we can get to work, like making all the crosses to ensure or try to ensure that they've got the stuff we want. 
Yeah, but but they're still pretty cold hardy, right? Like even as as they exist today, I think because we think of persimmons as being a southern fruit, like they can handle New England today. Yeah, totally. The major thing that is needed, so they're they're plenty hardy generally. Like as if you buy, you know, American persimmon from some online nursery or whatever and they ship it to you, it's got to live. Yeah. The main issue is ripening in time. So, you know, if you've got like a heavy, heavy frost in late September, you're bumping up against um, basically like viability of if you're going to get fruit or not. Um, So that's the first thing. And like it wouldn't hurt to just like have persimmons in waiting, (laughs) you know, for like those warm, those late frost, warm years. Also, like the only real hardiness thing, too, that we've we're encountering and in also talking to people like Buzz Fervor, who's in Zone 4A, Vermont, is like seedling persimmons tend to be less hardy. So that's where we're where we're testing first is like who's got antifreeze in their veins, basically yeah. planting from seed and then going from there, like what trying to unravel, like what is causing this? Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff going on with the genetics. You also have been digging in pretty hard on like the ploidy nature of mm-hmm. the genetics of the persimmon. Now, for somebody that's not like a you know a biology background, why is the ploidiness a big deal? So, in general, when you have sometimes okay, so I'm gonna. My default language is usually Apple, so I'm going to go back. I'm going to switch over and and tell this in Apple. So apples are diploids, meaning they have two sets of chromosomes. And so when there's a doubling event, so a diploid goes to a tetraploid, usually what that means is the fruit gets is huge compared to the diploid. The leaves are huge, and sometimes the plants are huge. It depends. But with apples, generally, the plants are a little bit stunted, and that probably has to do with, like, the massive fruits <laughs> that they're now producing. So from, a like, a consumer standpoint, like, having a higher ploidy than, like, the base nor- usual one will usually mean the fruits are larger. Um, you see this also in, like... All the blackberries that are coming out of like Arkansas or um, the ones that are like the size of golf balls. <laughs> exactly. Those those have been chemically like altered to go from diploid to tetraploid. And also like strawberries, you know, those are at like octoploid status this these days. And, you know, and it's all like human interference that that to just try to get things larger. Yeah, there's some chemicals you can use, uh, I believe, that can uh, push the genetics to go into ploidiness, right? Yeah, so the traditional chemical used is called colchicine, which is super toxic and hard to deal with if you're not like in a lab setting. But then they started to find that there's this one herbicide called orzolin or orizolin. I don't know how you say it, O-R-Y-Z-A-L-I-N. And that was causing doubling in a lot of the plants. It's like a pre-emergent herbicide, which is hilarious to think about, like, how many superweeds might have come up (laughs) as a result of, like, crazy doubling. Because also, like, what's what's that invasive 
like almost bamboo like thing in in New England. Japanese it's always ma- talked about uh, Japanese knotweed. Yeah, so that's Japanese knotweed has been found. I read this crazy paper about how it's the doubling and then the reducing back is its main mechanism for for invading new areas and like being able to be successful in you know increasingly colder or wetter or whatever is it's just like constantly and it's probably probably some of it has to do with people pouring herbicides on them or or god knows what or the cold weather so outside of human manipulation it's basically like something that happens randomly in nature that often is the reason for successful establishment beyond its native boundaries. Yeah, I wonder, you know, uh, getting on the invasive species thing, you have these invasive species come in, and they're usually not invasive right up front. Like, they usually settle in, and then it seems like after 20 or 30 years, there's like this sudden change. And I wonder if that has to do with how they're reacting, because a lot of ploidiness comes from species trying to create, to exploit a niche, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that plays into some of the, into that uh, how non-natives can turn into these invasive species. Yeah, it could. I, I mean, I also like this is only on topic for this last okay. thing you're saying, but like, but like I read this hilarious paper about honeysuckle, Japanese honeysuckle, and how cardinals have started like prioritizing feeding on the red berries because it makes them redder. And the chicks <laughs> dig the like deep red plumage. And so like it's totally become like a sex icon sort of thing that that's like, well, that's how it <laughs> yeah, that's how this thing is so successful. Like it's totally turned cardinals into like the Kardashians, you know? And so <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a really good pun in there somewhere about Cardinal Kardashian. It's <laughs> right, it's there. Right. I don't have it right now off the tip of my tongue, but yeah, it, it speaks to the fact that a lot of this stuff is so complicated and like we can we can leverage what we understand as much as we can. But like we also have to be like really observant of the fact that we many times don't really know what we're we're dealing with. We think we do. And then we learn a little bit more like, oh, actually, we didn't. And then we think for some reason that's like the new, you know, that's the new goalpost. Like we've made it. We, we understand this now. And there's nothing surprising right. we're going to learn in the future. But I, I do want to talk a little bit more about this genetics, because one of the things that I know you've been looking into is whether or not there's been selection happening or there was selection happening by indigenous people with persimmons and the way we see them spread across the landscape and their fruit. Yeah. So one of the goals of the of sequencing this genome is to well, it is to like identify markers essentially for a whole slew of things. But one of the things is we know that the northern 90 chromosome persimmon exists in the southern 60 chromosome range in numbers. And so like it's in Kentucky, it's in Virginia, it's in North Carolina. And I have a feeling that if we were able to go out and map these trees, we'd probably start to see like traditional indigenous pathways arise from it. But one of the things that alone, though, seeing the 90 like representing itself in this uh, southerly range within a certain line itself like shows that there has been selection. And then just doing the genetics on these on these trees to figure out like 
are they related? Like, what are they sharing? Like, how did this evolve from like, basically the first 90 chromosome persimmon was written about by white people in Alton, Illinois, which is in Southern Illinois. And so from there, seeing where, where they went and who's, who's related to what, and is it like a great, 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 great grandparent or, or what, or whatnot. So we should be able to tell that, which in a lot of our breeding work, like it's super important from like a royalty structure sort of thing of like, you know, it's the constant question of, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we are actively trying to work with wild, wild crop, native crops that had a heavy placement in indigenous culture. And so all the good genetics we're working from essentially were very likely selected by indigenous people. And so like putting that in as the ground floor of a royalty structure for anything that we come up with in the future that, you know, could help push the range. It might turn it into an industry, something like that. At first, when you said royalties, I was thinking more like genetic lineage. Like my dog is a duchess because of her birth certificate. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, okay, like I see where you're going. Then he flipped it on me. But like, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, It's something I don't think that gets a lot of attention. And obviously, it's like this really uneasy ground as somebody who does sell plants and focuses on native plants about like, what is my responsibility and what should I be doing in terms of like honoring that work that's been done in the past and like giving back financially for that work that makes it so I can sell sunchokes or, you know, whatever. It's funny, a couple of years ago, we actually had a guest who uh, had researched the Cherokee and their involvement with honey locusts, which I know is something we've talked about in the past a little bit uh, off the air. And like, it's just, it's wild because we, we forget that like these things were still in transit. These were all plants that were in transition because nothing is really static that I try to imagine like what, what a persimmon would look like today if white people had never shown up in North America. You know what I mean? Like where they would be today if they had continued that genetic research that had been going on. The same with pawpaw, hickory, American chestnut, even white oaks, red oaks. They were all something that was probably managed in some capacity, maybe oaks less because of the diversity. That would have been a really, really tough one, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's just like, it's, it's really, uh, I guess, like grounding to think about like, how small this moment in time when we're trying to do this stuff, bring these crops back is in the, in the longer history of how they've been stewarded. So giving back, I think is really great if you can do it. That's the goal. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Basically to like 
create silvopasture systems that are adopted by a wide swath of the United States that help not only like give back from a monetary perspective and also like a signatory perspective on the genetics, but also like, yeah, carbon sequestration, like growth of agroforestry, adoption of agroforestry. Persimmon seems to be like the golden ticket in that realm to me. It really does. It's just got it all. Yeah. Yeah. The amount <laughs> yeah. of the amount of calories it can put out. And especially if you're working with like pigs like you were talking about in terms of what they can how they can convert it, you know, a sugar into a protein, basically. You know, and I, I think that's really like I think it's important to think about these crops as human food, but also the role that these crops would have in supplementing like monocrop corn is something I don't think we should dismiss. And that that's in mm-hmm. particular around like nuts. Like hickories are a really phenomenal nut to eat. They're a pain to process. Give them to cattle. Give them, you know, give them to something that can eat them. I don't I don't actually don't know much about cows. I've never worked with cows. Uh, but <laughs> so maybe that wasn't the right example. But you know, the idea of like, all right, so instead of trying to make trying to restructure the entire American diet. How do we do these things in a way that's most accessible and um, can cut out as much of the bad stuff of our diet without having to necessarily make it functionally different? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about like kind of where, where does the persimmon fit in the American diet in a hundred years in the, you know, this climate, not apocalypse situation? Yeah. So, I mean, just from a, like a nutritional standpoint, Persimmons are 31. Well, as you said earlier, they are, they're the most nutrient dense native fruit to North America. So see ya, papa. <laughs> but uh, they also like, they have 31% sugar They're They have 19 amino acids out of 20. So they're almost a complete protein, which is a real shame. Cause if they were like, whew, we would be, you know, see ya soy, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and then they just have tons of macronutrients. And I mean, overall, like they're an incredible carbohydrate. And, and a lot of times like animal diets or human diets are broken down into, yeah, carbs versus protein. And it's always like carbs are villain, you know, seen as villains and all these things. But like it's where a lot of energy is. And so if I were to like fast forward 100 years and looking at the American diet on persimmon, persimmon would be an additive in anything that tastes good. <laughs> you know, like it would be sweet to like completely use it as a sugar substitute. Like granulated? Yeah, granulated. It's weird. I mean, the American persimmon is currently weird to work with. If you heat it in any way as a as a raw product, if you heat it, it like starts to turn solid in a way and it, the tannins sort of come out and so you start to so there's a lot to work with but i'm sure i mean hell we've worked a lot more on other crop on other annuals to get them into our diets than, yeah. than this but yeah just as like an incredible energy source that's probably a superfood it would be cool to see like in the grocery store those cottage cheese cups that have like persimmon pulp on the bottom rather yeah. than pineapple (laughs) yeah but also just the animals like it makes so much sense for them to for them to eat persimmons like i don't know why it's not happening more yeah when with how quick they grow i mean like if you're gonna do a silvopasture that should be by far 
one of the first crops to consider because the how quickly it grows, you know, if you're going to plant like a hickory tree, thinking like calorically speaking, before you're getting the same harvest as you would out of a persimmon, you're going to be waiting 30, 40 years. I mean, they'll produce, mm-hmm. but not like not even close to the volume you'll see out of a persimmon tree. Right. I've got two in my front yard. They're 25 feet tall. And I think I planted them four years ago. I mean, they were like first year whips, but like that that's what they do. It's just like if you give mm-hmm. them everything they need, they just take off. Yeah. And they're also like, what what is it? So there's a certain class of plants that I really love. And I basically call them like they're part of a disturbance ecology. And persimmons are right in there where they're fire adapted. They will run if like, you know, say a deer comes along and eats the whole top off your off a young tree it'll send out like a century tree for i think as a defensive compound like they'll start to send out runners in order to try and protect the original like the main tree from from browse yeah yeah they're just like built to survive and they can handle like all the soils and yeah. and water too <laughs> and water right yeah. so like in virginia one of my lease properties is it's a wetland, like it's a major seasonal wetland. And every place where I have like a micro topography of like, say, eight inches taller than the rest of the, I've got a persimmon coming up. Yeah. They just know they're intuitive. Smart they take trees. no effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah they, so. You don't have to spray for bugs. They will, you know, and you know, you mentioned deer and like, I honestly, I think a deer's hit one maybe once, but they they don't really like those like velvety leaves. They're just not, not mm-hmm. really, or at least here, the deer don't seem to want them. Oh, here they do. But really? It's, it's Maybe an they, epidemic. Yeah. I, have a, I have an epidemic of deer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because they just don't know what it is around here because they're not common. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. That could be. Yeah, because I, like I said, maybe I've seen a nibble here and there, but. It's funny, I have some um, quints in the backyard and they get destroyed by deer. And they have very similar, like, kind of thickish leaves, but they they don't touch the persimmons. So maybe I'm just lucky. Maybe my deer are just not evolved for that. Yeah, I think mine probably have it, like, in their microbiome <laughs> gut. Like, yeah. every now and then they just get a persimmon craving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I, I can understand. I know this has been one of your main interests, and I do want to talk a little bit about oaks as well, because I've been getting into a, a real rabbit hole on oaks lately. And one of the things I've actually been thinking about is as we try to think about these like novel ecosystems that are going to be coming up because of climate change and what what our responsibility as uh, land stewards in terms of like facilitating migration for species that move very slowly north during like this impending climate, you know, whatever you want to call it. A lot of species that can survive those colder climates don't travel fast enough. So and also like you're going to have species traveling and then like trying to create kind of new ecosystems because there are new places with other plants that also ended up kind of in the same spot. And I've been trying to think about like, all right, what, where does a persimmon fit into that kind of ecosystem around here? I I feel like it would do really well in like around like white oaks. Like I think that'd make like, it would make a nice sub canopy tree for like a white oak, uh, oak hickory forest kind of area. And then you get the best of both worlds. But to get back to you, you were uh, recently in Portugal doing fun stuff with acorns, which I'm, A, incredibly jealous about. You must have just had a 
field day with the dehesas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got invited to attend a conference on edible acorns and it was in it was on this it was right on the line of Spain and Portugal and apparently like every 2 years it goes between one one country or the other. And I love nothing more than a completely nerdy tiny niche of a conference because that's when people come out of the wood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I attended this conference. And what was so interesting to me is, yeah, in Spain and Portugal, you know, they have these in, in Portugal, it's called Montado and Spain is called Dehesa, which are these oak savannas that through human manipulation over time, especially over like the last 120 years or so, have become pretty I mean, pretty decently, like two species silvopastures, like across vast areas of land and where, you know, hamon or Iberian ham is produced, the you know, most expensive ham in the world because it's finished on these in these savannas on acorns. But what was so interesting to me about this conference was they were looking to move past that, like, OK, so we hit our we have succeeded in the silvopasture realm of oak trees, but now like how do we take them further and reintroduce them into human diets? And I think that's like, it was such a valuable thing because it's, it's totally where my, like a lot of my research has been is like, okay, well, sure. I can create these crazy orchards that drop for, you know, from May to March and, all that matters for me right now is that I can get animals to eat the drops. But if I can get humans to start eating, you know, to, can I, if I can get humans to go through this thing as a you pick or something, then it's going to have a lot more value added to it than just the meat. But like having an economic strata of just animals, I think is actually a pretty good way to like change agriculture in, cer in certain respects. So I learned so much <laughs> at this conference, and one of which is like, I guess I'll go into three realms. The first, so we'll do fruit exploring, and then we'll do nutrition, and then we'll do like, I don't know, I'll, I'll freewheel it. <laughs> but like in these niche crops, like there were quite a few people there that would be considered fruit explorers, or I, I consider myself a fruit explorer of like just people that go out and look for improved or crazy in some way, fruit or nut producing tree to then like try to bring, save it, put it back into circulation, giving it a job of some sort. At this conference, I learned that there's tons of people like going out, not tons, let's say a handful of people going out. Dozens of us. <laughs> into Spain and into Portugal and looking for like very low tannin acorns, acorn producing trees. And from there, like propagating them and trying to get them out. And because low tannin in acorns is like the moneymaker. There's a lot of people out there that leach and, and this is happening there too, where like acorn flowers being made from high tannin acorns that have been leached, but ultimately like that processing system is expensive and cumbersome and doesn't really meet current like consumer levels yeah. to justify the cost. 
uh, you so you end up seeing it like in the United States, you see it like in Asheville, <laughs> you know, or some some other uh, place that might people be people like us. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like if I were somebody were like, hey, Liza, where do I buy acorn flour? <laughs> I don't know, but I guess I could tell you how to make it, yeah. <laughs> you know. But anyway, finding these low tannin acorns is sort of like the next era of how to bring these to the human consumers. And something interesting along those lines is the Spanish government is basically writing regulations for what trees can be propagated and like planted out. Like it's, you can't do it willy nilly like you can in the United States. Like they have to evaluate and all these things before they can give like permission of these fruit explorers or whatever this is sort of new of the fruit explorers to like reintroduce or introduce these low tannin acorn cultivars and one of the guys there whom i'll remain who will remain nameless was telling me that the spanish government is actually stealing these cultivars that that he's been finding and patenting them and then fast tracking them into the release into being planted the spanish research project <laughs> and so like the sp- these like fruit explorers are in a huge need of somebody lab a genetics lab or something to do like quick genetic thumbprints of everything they're finding in order just to save it from getting completely co-opted by the spanish government and i'm really thankful that i don't think anything like that would ever happen in the united states because they don't care. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess that is the silver lining to the fact that our food system is entirely built on monocrops. Right, exactly. But the thing about, so the species that were mostly talked about were Quercus ilex or holm oak and Quercus suber or cork oak. And there's low tannin specimens of both, like good healthy handfuls of specimens that have been found. And at this conference, I actually got to taste a bunch of them, fresh and dried. And, you know, I've tasted similar or lower amounts of tannin in the United States. It was actually really refreshing (laughs) that finally, like, I guess due to our, like, North America's vast diversity of oak trees, we have them. Like, it's just a matter of having to find them. And... It's unfortunate that we're at the point where we have to find them now (laughs) because like 120 years ago, like the TVA did all sorts of contests for this and like they found, you know, the lowest tannin white oak, the lowest tannin chinkapin oak, like the lowest tannin chestnut oak. Like they were finding all these specimens that had been propagated and were getting planted out and now they're, you know. Taylor Malone and I found the Lent white oak, the winner of the white oak group that's still exists, still alive. Oh, you did. And and I've had a hard time grafting it, but I did get somebody to graft it for me who's got it in a greenhouse currently and is doing fine. That's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, the beginnings of this conference were just like, man, if we could just somehow get people to look and eat like taste acorns like we could really get somewhere um like for instance instance i grew up close to williamsburg virginia and colonial williamsburg has tons of quercus virginiana or live oak no 
that it? Anyway, I think so. I, mean, I mostly just speak Latin sometimes, but it's an evergreen oak. And like most of those acorns have very little tannin, like perceptible tannin compared to what I was eating. So it's just like, I feel like low, the pursuit of low tannin acorns is a bit of the Wild West that I would love to see start to take off. Yeah. And I would love to see somebody like put up a million dollars or yeah. something like that to go go find it. Uh, yeah. I I love the burr oaks. I know there's like, I don't think there's taxonomy. I'm never going to say this word correctly because the microphone is on. Taxonomy. Yeah. I'm not going to even try. Biologically speaking, there is no difference between two different types of burr oaks, but there's like a swamp variety that just like gets significantly bigger and has low tannins. That is really, really appealing to me, but it is not anywhere close to me to even like get involved with harvesting or like trying to find ones that are good. I don't know if you've ever gotten to uh, mess around with burr oaks, but they're, or if you've ever even seen them, but they're ridiculous. They're huge. Yeah, I I was sent some this winter to like grow out from a friend that made like a low and it's giant. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like it looks fake. I mean, the actual acorn's like a golf ball. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, it absolutely looks fake. Yeah, and it's so much. I mean, it's just so much bigger than any of the acorns I tried in, in Spain and Portugal. I talked about uh, it's is it macrocarpa? Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's macrocarpa. I t- I talked about burr oak with some Portuguese people and they said that actually like after the war, like the United States sent over a ton of Baroque into <laughs> Portugal. And so they actually have some, but like nobody's been, they're like, Oh yeah, but they're all bitter. And I was like, are you sure? Like <laughs> maybe you should just do an assessment. Yeah, just, like, just check yeah, it out. <laughs> some Baroques are bitter, but a lot are really quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, comparatively to like red oak they're outstanding (laughs) to me that size though is like the thing that should be like not that you can't process small acorns but man i think about like how much easier it would be to scale production with something that much bigger that produces fewer bigger nuts um that that seems like a no-brainer to me yeah absolutely I mean, you, you see it, we see it with chestnuts, like Chinese chestnuts, like people only want the big nuts. And I don't know if that's just like an ego thing or, or an actual like picking, you know, sure. It is a lot faster and more economical to pick up big nuts off the ground than small ones. Yeah. So yeah, I completely agree. And I wish that we it's not going to happen in Savannah Institute, at least for, you know, we've already got our crops that we're working on, but it would be so amazing for somebody to actually pick this up and work. And I would be happy to share any sort of connections and whatnot. But if I were to put a wish out there, it would be somebody work on Baroque, like not in a backyard way, like yeah, at scale. Really do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At scale. Yeah. And that's the hard part is like, it does take a, a significant investment to like really, build an infrastructure and you know i hope so i i agree with you i think uh in terms of like making acorns a crop food for humans would require something like the burr oak and some intensive research going into it i was also thinking about this other piece with acorns Uh, a friend of mine brought up to me about the processing 
pra- the actual processing practice, like we are, we're talking about like leaching acorns. Most people put it in water, like either standing water or running water. But also like there's an interesting history. If you look at the process of leaching those tannins in different parts of the country, uh, different indigenous groups did it different ways. One of the ways is like slaking, which I'd never really thought about, like how you might nixtamalize mm. corn. And a friend of mine tried it and she said it was actually quite good uh, and there was like a noticeable difference. So I, I wonder, well, A, if that was influenced by the types of acorns, like the types of oaks that were growing there, which there seems to be very just like, and of course, I'm just like reading research papers and trying to like connect these dots. So like this is no scientific consensus or anything. It's just me being like, hmm, that looks interesting. That there does seem to be some overlap in what the main types of oaks are in regions and how they were traditionally leached. And um, if we started incorporating some of those thoughts into the species we're picking, how that might change that flavor profile and make it a little bit more accessible. Oh, that's fascinating. I've not thought about that really much. Like the slaking is new to me, but would totally make sense, I think. Also, like the, you know, if you're looking at indigenous, like old pictures of like California, indigenous, like processing acorns, you know, you see all these holes like in rocks and such, but like those sorts of rocks don't really, you know, they're not ubiquitous, like across the United States. And we certainly have like way more species, you know, like that are growing in, yeah, places where there's no rocks like at all. (laughs) And so yeah, just thinking about how processing might have happened if it wasn't like pounded or, or basically like this in the same vein of a grist mill or something. Along those lines, I met a man. Actually, I have a, I ate them all this morning. I finished eating them. So this doesn't show, this doesn't help any. But I met a man who he's been on like a lifelong acorn adventure <laughs> in terms of like figuring out how to eat them. He's in uh, Basque, I believe he's in Basque, Spain. And he was saying that, he's like, okay, well, like, I've got these tannic acorns near me. The thought was, what other, what are analogs that exist that have this much tannin that are actually consumed by humans? And how are they doing it? And he was like, aha, olives are terrible. (laughs) And yet, through fermentation, they turn into these delicious products. And so he, I, I, I think I'm going to write an article about this because he's going to announce his workshop, uh, I think in April. But he has figured out the methodology behind fermenting acorns Ooh. so that the meats are delicious. And the amount of tannins they have, like it just matters how long you soak them. Um, and change the water essentially, but it is like soaking, you know, you're just cracking them and it is just soaking for however long in a brine and man, they're fantastic. And that to me, like completely caused me to have like an aha moment of like, cause, cause tannins in acorns, like they can actually like cause your livestock. If we're going to go talk about livestock, they're going to cause them to lose weight, you know, like, yeah. It can be a a toxin or an anti-nutrient. And so this idea of like picking up acorns and like putting them in barrels and like fermenting them in brine and, you know, 
having them as a late seat, you know, a late winter feed if you need to to or something like super valuable <laughs> to me. Yeah. And also potentially as a human food too. Like acorn silage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that is certainly something that, that I think about a lot. So I mean, basically, yeah, that's what you're doing is processing it in a similar, similar enough way. Mm-hmm. So there's more than just, you know, who knows, like by the coast, potentially like, you know, eons ago, like maybe there was like saltwater brined acorns going on. And we just, I mean, I'm almost positive. I've got to imagine. Were, like on those islands in Georgia. Yeah. Like, or, you, you know, you're talking about like Spain, but like that Iberian Peninsula in Italy have so many different or similar characteristics. And, you know, the acorns are pretty maybe not today, but historically were considered or understood as more of a food, and especially given the way they managed olives. I can't imagine that they didn't at least try. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just not written about. And part of that, I, I also learned watching all these presentations, I kept seeing photos in these like, you know, people that speak no English. Like I kept seeing photos of American Indians, like harvesting, you know, all in their acorn culture like it just presentation after presentation and i was talking to one of the portuguese guys i was like what the hell why don't why don't you use your own photos like your own historical photos and they're like oh they don't exist because eating acorns acorns are a poor food and so like there's so much shame around acorn culture and like subsistence living that like nobody wanted to be photographed engaging in any aspect of it whatsoever. And so now in like our renaissance that we're trying to bring back to switch this crop over to humans, like we've only got you guys over in California to lean on. <laughs> wow. It really is one of the most interesting things I think with this podcast and like getting into some of the research we've done. You start digging into these like rabbit holes of like very basic fundamental how did people live a thousand years ago? There's just so little, despite it being the most common information, because it was so common that people didn't think there was a reason to write it down. Why would you write down what you do every day? Like, how is that going to change? And obviously it did, but it was just so common knowledge that no one cared to make sure that it stayed, like, not known. Mm -hmm. Now we got to do the uh, legwork of trying to rediscover all this stuff. Yeah. Recreating the wheel. It's fun, at least. I mean, I guess that's a ho- that's a hobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eliza, for people that uh, want to know more about what you're doing, watch you go on these wild trips of like when you were looking up the um, the was the black locust for cultivar uh, the ship. Was oh, the, sh- ship the ship mask black yeah. locust. I was just like, I've done a lot of research on black locust, and I'd never heard the term ship mask black locust until you were talking about it. Anyone that can do that is worth paying attention to. So where can people go <laughs> find you and, and your fun work? Yeah, I have. Well, I have a blog that I, I poorly maintain. <laughs> Maybe you get an article or two a year out of me on it. And so that's Eliza Apples, E-L-I-Z-A-P-P-L-E-S dot com. And then, yeah, the, the Tree Crop Improvement Program, which is what I work with at the Span Institute, where um, hopefully getting a, our own little like website section where we'll, we'll like publish the Black Locust Improvement Report that me and Taylor R- Malone wrote. And like, you know, which are 
probably the nerdiest uh, specimens available on the internet for resources. <laughs> so those are coming. Those will so hopefully come out sooner than later. And then, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, you can follow me on Instagram at Eliza Apples. Yeah, I'm, I've uh, started to downsize a bit on the social media aspects of of my life. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, uh, just because I'm like fully employed to do this now. <laughs> so, so it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. I don't have to like sell it as hard. Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm generally like happy to talk about these sorts of things if the conversation is productive. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. I have a million things I'm going to go research after this. So uh, hopefully next time we talk, we'll have a lot of new exciting developments on uh, Burr Oaks to talk about. Yeah. One quick thing, because I can't, it's circling around in my mind, is have you, have you read the paper about how large acorns in the United States, the theories around how they were dispersed, or why there's like clear correlation of larger masting oaks? No, you're, you're going to change my life again. Yeah, I'll send you the paper. Okay. They're not saying humans at all, which is ridiculous, but they are saying that the size of the nut is means it's got like a larger lunchbox to eat from. And so like larger oak, larger nut, nut oak species or specimens tended to travel better. <laughs> and they're and they were like giving so you, no indication of how yeah <laughs> you know but uh, i have so many questions because it wasn't it wasn't a passenger pigeon yeah <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> found the uh his his uh winter meal <laughs> with one acorn yeah yeah no now i need to know about that but um yes this is what this is what happens every time i talk to you is i end up finding about <laughs> 10 different things i need to research so thank you so much your work is really valuable i hope you know, you keep doing it because we all need it. And yeah, we'll be in touch soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, look forward to hearing it in all of its glory. <laughs> <laughs>